Lisa, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Lisa, I've been following your content for a while and a lot of things that I have learned, which otherwise I wouldn't have thought about. One of those being consent around sex in relationship, like people being there, being in a relationship for a really, really long time and then still having that, you know, consent is one of those key things in the communication in the sex, right? So which, which is really, really great. We'll talk about that. But how I want to start this conversation is by talking about, you know, the whole generation that we are in right now of the casual dating relationship and the hookup culture and stuff like that. And how do you think that sort of the whole culture, do you think that obviously, you know, help people to gain the pleasure, but how it sort of pans out in the emotional end? What's your thought on like the overall scene out there? I think it's hard to generalize. I don't want to say that casual sex is bad or casual sex is great. It can be different things for different people. And I think being sort of self-aware about how certain situations make you feel uh, as well as clear with your partner about what your expectations are or what you are looking for. I think being honest both with yourself and each other can go a long way in ensuring that if we do choose to participate in casual encounters, they are still something that is adding positively to our lives as opposed to making us feel, um, you know, not so good after. So I think uh, as with most things in life, you know, it's very rarely that something is all good or all bad, especially in the realm of relationships. There's so many there's so much variation also in people's own behaviors in their own circumstances, upbringing, situations, what they're looking for. And so it's really hard to give a blanket answer, you know. But I do think that we'd all benefit from ensuring that we treat each other with respect and kindness, no matter whether it's one night stand or whether it's someone you've been with for 20 years. I think so often um, we're just sort of inept in communicating one-on-one when we're naked. (laughs) I think most people find it difficult, to be honest, difficult to sort of really communicate clearly. It's often sort of hard to say what you mean because there's so much societal conditioning and shame and awkwardness. And I don't know, we don't get any practice at it. The only time you get to do that is when you're in the situation. Um, So I think that just by thinking about this stuff, you know, we could do ourselves a favor, I think, simply by aiming to be more self-aware, aiming to think about what it is we're looking for in our romantic or sexual life. How can we ensure that we are treating ourselves and each other with compassion and respect, even if it's not a relationship that's leading to something long-term? You know, I think that unfortunately, sometimes we correlate short-term with somehow like less worthy of care. And respect. And that, that for me is like a very sad and limiting way to think about things. Whether you're with someone for one minute or with them for two hours or with them for two years, I really think they are worthy of your respect. And I feel like we need to, to think about that a bit more. I think there's a funny uh, tendency for, for very young people to find feelings embarrassing or something. Like we have to pretend that we don't get affected by the other person's behavior or pretend that we like them less than we do because to have feelings makes you like uncool or you don't want to be the one who likes the other person more. And often there's some game playing and, you know, you don't respond on time. You, I don't know, this, this, this kind of thing. I personally don't do at all in my romantic life. I feel like it can be hard to unlearn and recondition the courtship scripts we're fed, but I do think that it would serve us to be more clear and more 
compassionate in our communications and also to think about the way gendered expectations um, have been woven into how we see this stuff. Like, I think um, sometimes there's slightly different expectations around how men uh, feel they must behave and how women feel they must behave. And I think also in general, we're not all very good at uh, hearing no's. I think we need to get better at dealing with rejection, uh, respecting people's boundaries so that people can be clear. And I also think, I mean, we should should also allow for people to be transparent about their feelings as well. It isn't bad to have feelings. We're human. Most of us have feelings. So I don't know if we could all just recognize each other's humanity a little bit more, even in interactions that are fleeting. I think that would go a long way. And I think also understanding, you know, yourself a bit, if this doesn't work for you. I mean, some people just don't really have the ability to separate a, a strong emotional attachment from a sexual encounter. And if that sounds like how you operate, then maybe casual sex, you know, ends up making you feel not so good about things because you want more. So I think it's, and there's nothing wrong with that. Whereas other people might really enjoy casual sex. Maybe they don't have the current bandwidth for, you know, a more attached uh, relationship. And if both parties are on the same page about that, and that's what you both just, you know, want a good time together. I think that's, I'm not one to judge. I think that different people have different needs and different points in their life might be looking for different things. But if we can be clear about this stuff, both on a personal level with ourselves, like just being honest with yourself is actually um, easier said than done. And also with each other, you know, so we're never stringing each other along. And we're also um, never feeling sort of used or undervalued. And I think what I got from what you said is having that awareness on what you want or what your preference is, is the key here, right? Some people, like you said, I'm not looking at any kind of emotional investment at this point of time, but all I want is to have fun, seek pleasure, then casual in encounter can work like charm for you because you are not looking for any kind of emotional engagement and your partner is on the same page. And while for others, they are like, hey, you know what? I can't relate to getting involved without my emotion. Like I can't just get physical without my emotions being in place, right? So that brings me to also the point, Lisa, which is there's a lot of sort of societal pressure more now than ever before on having sex. Like in a friend circle, oh, you know, you are of this age and you still, you know, haven't had sex or whatever, right? So, like, you know, is there anything that you'd like to sort of share for the younger people on the pressure to have sex at certain age or like in early 20s or maybe, you know, late teens or whatever that is? What do you normally tell to maybe, you know, teenage, late teens or early 20, you know, people saying that, hey, this is the kind of pressure that I'm dealing with? I think that there's, it's so, it's so ironic, but in society, there will be, uh, to both force, you know, that you can never win. There's no winning. You will be shamed for having sex also. You will also be shamed for not having sex, right? I mean, women for, for often on the receiving end of such shaming, right? For, for having sex. There's almost like, I mean, you being a man and me being a woman, maybe we have experienced ourselves slightly different pressures. I feel like there's a, generally speaking, of course, it's not true for everybody, but generally speaking, I think there's certain pressures on women to, uh, maintain this aura of like, purity, virginity, you know, save yourself till marriage. And then the opposite conditioning on men where like, go have sex, have lots of sex, you know, men should always want sex. 
And I think really we do ourselves a disservice by operating within that, those sorts of notions. And both slut shaming as well as shaming someone for their sexual inexperience is so misguided and so unnecessary. And I really think that there's no pressure ever to do on to not do some, you know, it's such a personal journey. Um, and I think, I mean, it's important to remember that in India, the legal age of consent is 18. And so, you know, I would recommend abiding by the law on that front. Different countries have different uh, minimum legal age of consent, though. And that is a topic that is, um, uh, there's no easy answers around what the right age is, you know. Uh, but I do think that each person as an adult uh, should be able to decide for themselves when they are ready to explore their sexuality uh, with another person. You know, there's no pressure, there's no hurry. And at the same time, I mean, as an adult, if you have had sex, that's fine too. You know, why can't we just remove the shame and judgment out? Like it's really nobody's business other than yours as an adult who you're having consensual sex with or not having consensual sex with and some people may never want to have sex um i feel like we don't we don't talk about asexuality at all and anybody who's like not interested in sex or not driven by sex is made to seem like there's something wrong with them when actually asexuality is a an orientation you know and it's valid and there's no nothing wrong with that so i think we we need to be more expansive in how we think about sexuality uh and i think we need to mind our own businesses a little like <laughs> some another adults consensual um, relationships are not your business, neither is the lack of them, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I wish we could ease that pressure both ways, like neither the slut shaming nor the virgin shaming should be the reason uh, you take the decisions you do in your sexual life, you know? It's it's really something that's so much more than than that. Like, should not have to dictate this very personal aspect of your life. Yeah. And, you know, earlier, Lisa, you mentioned about like having the conversations uh, with partners on how you feel and, uh, you know, and also like what you want from the relationship. So what are the kind of conversations that we should really be having about sex in new relationship for the people who are in the relationship? What are the kind of conversations that they must have about sex? I think it's really important um, for people to both be on the same page about consent, about safety, obviously early on, these are, you know, before you even get naked, uh, these are two things that you need to be sort of aware about and willing to talk to each other about, right? Because sex does come with certain risks and those risks are easily mitigated, but you can't pretend they don't exist. Uh, I think that you want for both parties, ideally, to have a positive and memorable experience. And so, Educating yourself as well as talking to each other about consent, safety, and and pleasure as well um, can really go a long way. I mean, I think that uh, you know a lot of us just find it awkward to talk about this stuff, and and we kind of leave a lot unsaid. But I do think that in a way, actually having these conversations, especially if you're both really into each other and want to do something together, it could almost serve as a form of foreplay. It can be exciting to talk about this stuff. And I keep going back to the fact that I think like a basic recognition of each other's humanity a, a, a human decency kindness and respect like that is not too much to ask even in the most casual encounter and when we talked about earlier you know separating emotional attachment from the physical yes sure but you do not ever i think get to uh, exempt yourself from basic human decency i think that we ha must must always operate within that premise you know so even 
uh, with a casual partner or even with your wife. You need to be talking about consent, about contraception, about pleasure. You know, neither. I feel like uh, on the one hand, we, you know, in India, I mean, marital rape is still considered not a crime. <laughs> Sorry, I've phrased that so inarticulately. Marital rape still isn't criminalized in India. That's crazy, right? What does that say about how we see consent? Even in a long-term relationship, you cannot take for granted that your partner is always willing to do whatever you want, right? It needs to be a conversation. So I, I do think we need to just, you know, recognize that, that both parties have agency and autonomy and both parties should be here doing this thing by choice, right? And that they can change their mind even midway and that's okay. And you have to allow for that, like check in on each other. Does this feel okay? Are you enjoying this? Can I do this? Would you like to do this? You know, I feel like it's so easy to simply ask instead of assuming. And yet, I don't know why so often we don't ask or we just, you know, think that there's a certain script we have to follow and we just do that next thing. I think it would um, really benefit us from allowing for those interchanges before, during, and even after because, I mean, what's to lose? Like, I can never understand why someone doesn't want to do this. It will only make the experience more enriching. You will get to know each other better. You will probably get to know yourself better. And God forbid someone doesn't want to do what you want them to do. Wouldn't you rather know? Would, do you want to be this person who does something that's going to be uh, quite damaging to the other person? Surely not, right? So I feel like we need to we need to be so grateful when someone expresses their boundaries like thank you for honoring your boundaries why would you want to violate someone's boundaries ever um so i think yeah consent is so important and then even once we've understood consent i mean you know planned parenthood has this helpful model at least for beginning to understand consent it's called the fries model of consent f-r-i-e-s f F stands for freely given so consent should be freely given you know you shouldn't coerce someone into having sex with you right or pressure them into having sex with you R stands for reversible, that is at any point um, someone can say they don't want to do something, even if they'd earlier said that they do. Uh, I stands for informed, yes, so, you know, if somebody is sleeping or if somebody is drunk, they are not informed. You can, it's not a, it's not appropriate to initiate sexual activity. Similarly, if you can, if you have somebody's consent to have sex with a condom, if you were to secretly remove the condom during sex, that would be a violation of their consent, right? So both parties really need to know what they are saying yes to. Um, or no to, or whatever it is, right? Consent needs to be informed. Uh, e stands for enthusiastic. So, you know, both parties should happily and excitedly be wanting to do this in the sense that, again, it's similar to freely given. This is something you both are here because you want to be here for, right? And S stands for specific, that consent for one thing isn't consent for another thing necessarily, right? Just because you're kissing someone doesn't mean you have their consent for oral sex or penetrative sex or whatever it is. So, you need to check in on each other and ask, not assume. And I think even being, I mean, it's its all easier said than done because sometimes we might feel we don't have the ability to be as assertive as we want. I mean, I think so many women often fear for their safety. Sometimes it's easier to just go along with something than to say no, because I mean, look at what happens to people who say no. But yeah, there's like reports of acid attacks and, you know, worse crime. I mean, terrible things, unfortunately, happen to women in our country still and all over the world still simply for seeking to retain their bodily autonomy. And I, it's, it's like so distressing and, and horrific that we still live in a world that is like that. But I think we need to be mindful of this. Like this is the context within which people are having to navigate their own behaviors. So be extra mindful, man. Make it 
like clear to your partner that is okay for them to say no at any point and be okay with that no you know and i think we also need to be attentive to body language and like silence is never consent you know sometimes uh, it, it's much safer to assume that silence is a no not a yes sometimes if somebody is not able to say something it is much safer for all parties to to just not do anything rather than assume oh they didn't say anything so chalo they want it you know so i think that we have to um really 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 be so much kinder and gentler and more compassionate with each other than we tend to be i feel because of the shame and silence around this stuff i think that often we just kind of um i don't know are operating a bit ad hoc <laughs> instead of in a very thoughtful way and i think it's better to to err on the side of caution and be extra careful than take any chances if that makes sense I think also with contraception often those decisions are made in the heat of the moment you know oh do we have condoms it's also uh, something that tends to be i think in india still uh, difficult for women to take control of like the the tendency is that if people are using protection it will be only condoms and you know he must bring them if he brings them will he use them like there isn't it isn't always very gender equal in terms of just the power to navigate that choice of using protection i think that it would be it would benefit us for that to be a more gender equal conversation as well as a less heteronormative conversation because even non heterosexual uh, sexual activity often requires protection for it to be safe sexually transmitted infections are also a thing pregnancy is not the only thing we're protecting ourselves against so i feel like you know men often think they're doing women some big favor by wearing condoms um but yeah accidental pregnancy is not the only thing you are trying to protect yourself against right and and that too should be thought of as a shared responsibility so anyway you wouldn't be doing the woman a big favor but also you're protecting yourself against infections it's not just the the woman who you're trying who, who's benefiting from this or whatever so and similarly i mean even you know in same sex pairings or or any i mean a whole range of sexual activity whether it's oral sex whether it's anal sex um infections can be transmitted so we should be thinking about how we can have sex safely what our appetite for risk is and and having that conversation together you know i think that yeah we often don't talk about it or just leave these decisions these negotiations to the heat of the moment when our judgment is not always at its best you know you are more likely to be willing to take risks in the heat of the moment because it's so exciting and there no condoms here chalo we'll just you know whereas if you talk about it beforehand when you're both able to even go and get some condoms um you can easily mitigate many of these risks so and then also i mean if you know there's other methods of contraception out there as well like i think we as women don't get to talk about this stuff uh, until after we're married or have had a child already like in general there's a very low usage of uh, contraception such as birth control pills or iud's or any of that uh, especially by unmarried women but they exist you know i mean i have an iud and i love it it's an it's a a contraceptive device that's inserted into the uterus and provides extremely effective uh, protection against pregnancy one of the most effective methods you know because contraception failure exists i mean condoms don't are not 100% foolproof so there are things that there are also more methods that exist that can uh, you know aid in ensuring an even greater um, mitigation of those risks So yeah I mean I think it's so important to, to educate ourselves to remove the shame to talk about this stuff to respect each other and 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 really hear each other out you know 
sorry, I feel like I've, I've rambled. I can keep going. And then pleasure, of course. It's so good to talk to each other also about what you like, what you don't like, how you enjoy being touched, um, you know, how you enjoy being together. And, and, and I think those are also conversations that sometimes we don't have. And women particularly might feel like we can't, you know, kind of talk about our pleasure. I mean, good girls aren't supposed to like or want sex, right? crazy but perhaps if we could talk about our pleasure and and be more forthcoming about the fact that we do enjoy certain things or this is how we enjoy them sex would probably be more uh, gender equal in the distribution of pleasure you know uh, i mean the orgasm gap is like this global statistic that in heterosexual sexual encounters men are far far far, far more likely to end with an orgasm than women are currently globally so Anyway, these are these are all things I think we can make great strides in in if we are willing to talk to each other. Yeah. And I think what I took away from what you've just shared is the constant communication and stop making assumptions and also explore each other by just understanding each other, like taking that time to sort of understand the person better and, and respecting the boundary, right? Which is which is really, really crucial. Um, so, Lisa, I was looking at the stats before coming for this conversation and then um, I realized that India is one of the, comes on like one of the top countries, porn consuming countries, which sets a certain expectation on the consumers or the people who are regular consumers of the porn. They have a certain sort of notion of this is what sex looks like. How do you think that sort of impact our sexual life? I mean, you know, Globally, in the absence of sex education in schools, in the absence of conversations around sex at home, in the internet era, porn has become, um, what, you know, one of the most, if not the most prominent reference point for sex, right? People, I think in the US, I have a statistic I read and you can, I mean, forgive me if it's not 100% accurate, but you can verify it. I'm pretty sure that this is the stat. It said that 50% of children under the age of 10 or by the age of 10 have stumbled upon porn, whether willingly or unwillingly, meaning either they've just found it because it's so ubiquitous that even if you're not looking for it, it might find you. You might be downloading music and there's a pop-up or you might, some friend might send something to you or whatever, right? Even if you're not actively looking for it, it's so central to the structure of the internet that it will find you. And then, of course, it's out there and maybe you are looking for it. So so whether inadvertently or deliberately, apparently 50% of kids stumble upon porn by the age of 10 in the US. Okay. Now, so obviously then more and more by the age of 12, 13, 14, 15, right? And, and in the US, internet penetration is like extremely high. Here we still, I mean, we have pretty high internet penetration now with smartphones. But basically, where there's the internet, it is hard to prevent your child from finding porn. So now we have to understand this and provide the tools to young people to navigate this material that they are likely to stumble upon in an informed way, right? I mean, I think in certain countries, in Scandinavian countries, or maybe it's in the Netherlands, again, I'm sorry, I might get the specifics a bit off, but like porn literacy is part of sex education in school. Because you want a young person to understand that if, especially if it's a studio produced mainstream porn, it's highly likely that there are two professional actors doing something that is choreographed that not just anyone might be able to do. And that the, you know, just like WWE isn't real sport, 
or F1 racing would not be an adequate source for you to learn how to drive from. Um, this is material that's produced for adult entertainment. It was never intended for education. And um, often it also is misogynistic and violent. Often it dis disregards consent. You rarely see condoms being used. Often the body types on display are uh, a very narrow representation of the, you know, great diversity that is out there. So you, you need not, you know, just because you don't have a body that looks like those bodies doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Or on the other hand, too often it fetishizes certain races or certain age groups or certain sort of professions or whatever. I mean, porn titles and mainstream porn sites are so demeaning often to certain races, genders, sexual orientation. It depends on what it is, right? So I feel like understanding that will then equip the person to navigate this medium that they might end up stumbling upon a little better. And for some people, I mean, that is not to say that all porn is bad. There's, there's also ethically produced porn, which is uh, attempting to, I mean, to, to mitigate these issues, you know. So if porn is the sex education for young people, how can we create porn that is mindful of all of this stuff, that is representative of a diversity of body types, sexual orientations, etc., that is uh, respectful to all genders, that is also looking at the emotional aspects of sex, that does portray condom usage, you know. And I think that uh, maybe for a young person, especially if their immediate environment is extremely sex negative, let's say you're a young person who's questioning your own sexuality and you're not entirely um, convinced that just because your parents and everybody else is telling you, you must love the opposite sex and get married and flana flana, and maybe that doesn't resonate with you and you realize that you're gay or that you're bisexual or whatever it is, and you're not allowed to express that in your own immediate environment, maybe by seeing that represented respectfully in um, ethical porn, it is validating to you. Like, okay, I'm normal. I'm not some freak. You know, people do love other people of the same sex as well. Or people do uh, have the same fantasy or curiosity that I do. I mean, so to some extent, you know, porn can also be a, a tool that affirms people or that, that, that does provide something that's beneficial. So I don't want to say, as, and as always, I mean, I feel like it's hard to say that any one thing is all bad or all good, right? You have to be aware of the various aspects um, of how something might impact people and try and harness the pros and mitigate the cons. Um, so, I mean, I think it's so important that we distinguish between, you know, mainstream porn and ethical porn. I think too often on porn sites, especially free porn sites, um, there isn't even clarity on whether these clips are consensually filmed, were they consensually shared, were they consensually put up on the internet, or is this someone's, you know, video they sent their boyfriend, or is this even a consensual act? I mean, sometimes acts of none of, of rape are filmed and put up on the internet, and then other people are consuming that as porn. I mean, that is crazy, right? That we need to do more to regulate the medium that arrives on the materials that arrive on the internet and make sure on a very basic level that consent is a part of that process on all grounds, right? That the act is consensual, that it was consensually filmed and that it was consensually disseminated. Then we come to all the other stuff that, you know, that does it need to be so violent or misogynistic or fetishizing of like non-white people or certain body types or whatever. And and so therefore, I would think that anybody who is consuming porn or does enjoy consuming porn should make the effort to look for ethical porn and be willing to pay for it. Because just like any other thing in life, if you're not paying for it somewhere, something exploitative is probably happening in order for it to reach you for free. So um, I feel like we, yeah, we should just be mindful of, of the ways in which 
these media are being consumed, the various the various possibilities out there for us to consume it more ethically if we do wish to consume it. And regardless of what happens, we need to, I mean, what what is ultimately being consumed, I feel like porn literacy is really important because a 10-year-old should not have to stumble upon a porn clip with zero prior context or information or guidance or, you know, I mean, that can be quite distressing even to a very young person. So I think we, we do need to talk about this stuff so that we can contextualize what we stumble upon at younger and younger ages. So Lisa, let's talk about pleasure. For the people who have been in relationship for a while, for like long-term relationship, how can they make the sex equally pleasurable and equally exciting? Because I'm sure in the beginning of the relationship, you know, they might have experienced a lot of uh, excitement and, you know, uh, and and plays with the sex and then eventually over the period of time like how can they continue sort of have the same level of pleasure and excitement so yes i suppose that there is a sort of general association with you know the longer you've been with someone the more likely it is for the sparks to peter down but you know that's that i mean some people from the very beginning haven't had very pleasurable sex and are just stuck with each other and on the other hand some people might find that their sexual life actually gets more exciting as they get to know each other better so you know different strokes for different folks i guess but i do think there is some uh truth to the fact that like when you especially when you live together maybe you're married with kids like there's so much other stuff that weighs down the relationship that sex becomes a falls lower and lower and lower on the priority list which is which is okay if that's what you both are okay with. But often it's just like, you know, the kids and the house running and salaries and work and I don't know, 50 other things that are stressing you out today have to be dealt with before you can even think of being romantic together. It's almost like you're, you know, I mean, running a home together, being, a, being parents together, these are very demanding. Uh, I mean, parenting, I feel like changes people's lives, right? Suddenly, this, these other creatures are more important than you every single day for the next 20 years. It doesn't really matter what you want. <laughs> what they want matters more. So it is, these things do change relationships. They, and, and, and even the toll that it would take on the body, right? Pregnancy and having a child and all of that. I mean, it's so much. So it does change your, I mean, it can change how you feel. Uh, about sex or how big a priority sex is in your life and that's like i mean i think as couples we should also give ourselves a permission to um like go through whatever life stage we're going through there isn't some ideal like hashtag couple goals that we always have to be like on some racetrack to achieving like you know malotras are having sex 10 times a week and we only do it once a month no you know each person is on their own journey and um and that's okay but i think that i think that if uh you both do sort of enjoy and kind of want or desire a more exuberant or exciting sexual life and you're not able to get there because of these other things or whatever then making it a priority i know this doesn't sound so sexy but in a, you know couples therapists often recommend scheduling sex i know this sounds kind of like oh shouldn't it always be spontaneous but honestly, when you have so many other things to attend to, that spontaneous sex can often just never, <laughs> it's never the right time. So, you know, if you decide together that like maybe uh, on such and such day, we have date night and no matter, unless it's some earth shattering commitment, we will make it a priority to have dinner together or cook for each other or go to a movie, you know, watch a movie, whatever, something you like doing together or work out together. I mean, 
often doing a physical activity together is, is like amazing foreplay, getting your heart rate up and sweating and everything. Then you're in the mood to dance, whatever, anything you like doing together, whether it's a hobby, a meal, um, something nice where you get to catch up, where it's just about the two of you, where somebody else is taking care of your kids and you're not thinking about work and your phones aren't with you. Like some me time that you set aside just for the two of you, if you can schedule that in and if you're both yearning for more sex, likely those me times will end up leading to sex if that's what you want obviously it's again again should never be a pressure or an expectation on one partner when the other partner doesn't want it i mean i think it's important for both people to be on the same page but just making it a priority again i think is a big step in making it exciting again i feel like making each other feel wanted and giving each other attention affection and intimacy that's just for each other does become harder when you have all these other things and families entwined and living with all you know so, so it takes some, I feel, deliberate. It's hard for it to just happen. It's funny how we kind of uh, grow up believing that like sex and love are just things that we should magically be good at, you know, that it's just going to happen. Like there, it doesn't take work, but it does take work. It does take work to make somebody feel loved and valued every day. Just notionally saying I love you or having said it once 10 years ago doesn't mean they feel loved every day. And similarly, just because you had great sex 10 years ago doesn't mean that that desire is kept alive every day, right? So what can we do? Small things on a daily basis to make each other feel wanted, feel excited, feel loved. It doesn't have to be big things. It doesn't have to be expensive presents. It can be small things, a flirtatious text, a, you know, a kiss every morning, um, looking in each other's eyes, talking about non-work stuff, talking about each other's curiosities, desires, fantasies. I mean, Small things on a daily basis, I feel, can really go a long way in retaining a sense of, in keeping the sense of play and fun and this romance alive. Because at some point, relationships, especially when you're married with kids, especially in the Indian context, joint families and all the family obligations that come with it, marriage can be more like a partnership, man. You're somewhere between roommates, brother and sister or business partners, you know. So how do you keep, I mean, and for some people, as I was saying, it was never, romance and sex was never really part of the equation. So you can, but that can be built um, if there is at least the seeds of a spark. And if there was the seeds of a spark, it can certainly be rekindled. I think those are some really great practical tips on how you can sort of rekindle that spark that you had in the beginning. I mean, it's all the responsibilities of the world that you have. So, you know, talking of which, you know, um, Lisa, a lot of people sort of feel that sex is all about penetration, orgasm like release and it's done, right? So how can probably people add to scheduling sex and stuff like that, maybe start exploring other forms as well? So first, is that the ultimate goal of having sex, penetration, orgasm, release, and it's done? And how can, you know, they add more colors and variations to sort of, you know, take the experience to the next level? Uh, in general, uh, the ideas when, when, you know, whatever little somehow from the media, from the society, from wherever else, uh, textbooks, the message we get in terms of like, what is sex tends to be a very heteronormative penetration centric definition, right? Sex equals penis in vagina and sex ends when the person with a penis ejaculates. Um, I feel like this, kind of very limited script, sexual script that we would most of us come into, you know, our early relationships believing, doesn't even acknowledge women's pleasure. <laughs> like 
I mean, we're kind of taught that sex is a reproductive act, right? In school, if we get that reproduction chapter, it's called the reproductive chapter, right? Reproductive system. And then... Which teachers always skipped, by the way. Yeah, which teachers <laughs> often skip. But sometimes, I mean, even if, if you saw the page in the textbook or whatever, you probably see like an illustration of the penis and the testes. And then you see like the uterus, ovaries, fallopian tube. That there isn't a diagram of the external female genitalia. Nobody labels the clitoris or talks about it. Nobody even mentions women's orgasms, right? And nobody even mentions that some people uh, might have sex purely for pleasure, that pregnancy or childbirth is not the desired outcome, uh, that pleasure is a valid reason to have sex, and that people of uh, the same sex can also have pleasurable sex together. And this is how that would take place. You know, we never get any of that, right? So I think that we need to unpack the heteronormativity around our sexual scripts, as well as the centering of the penis penetration and ejaculation in, in our sexual scripts, because there's a lot of pleasure to be had for all parties once that's done. It's not only serving women and queer people. It will serve the straight men too, believe me. If you open your mind to the vast expanses of pleasure potential that lie beyond just erection, penetration, ejaculation. I think there's, there's a much more fulfilling sexual landscape to be found for everybody. I mean, so many men actually write into me with so many concerns about their performance. I, you know, am I big enough? Am I hard enough? Do I last long enough? So I don't even think the script actually makes men feel so good. And yet we just like, I don't know, cling on to it. There's so much more to sex than just penetration, you know? And to some extent, this anything else is relegated to the realm of foreplay and indeed it does help to make penetration feel more comfortable etc to build up one's arousal and really feel relaxed and you know your body also produces lubrication and the muscles relax etc if you have enough time spent working on um, getting really turned on before sort of beginning penetration however Foreplay does make it sound like these other things, kissing, oral sex, fingering, breastplay, massages, tickling, holding each other, whatever, flirting, any number of different things other than penetration. It sounds like all of this stuff is optional or some, you know, somehow less legitimate or less like that's not sex though. Only this, only penis and vagina is sex. And all this other stuff is like some optional precursors to this main event. Whereas, you know, I mean, oral sex can be the main event. Even, I mean, you can kiss for, you know, half an hour and it can be really exciting. Uh, it doesn't have to be like a one second cursory kiss so that you can just jump into something else immediately. Often these acts in and of themselves can be so pleasurable. And also there's so many erogenous zones for all people of all genders beyond just the genitals, you know. But we often don't even explore those. I mean, whether it's your ears or neck or back or feet or I mean, some people might find uh, you know, that they were so surprised at the amount of pleasure that some random other part of their body can provide to them when kissed or touched or massaged or licked or whatever it is. So we don't even bother exploring all of that and just like go boom, boom, finish. <laughs> Where did like, it, who's losing out? You know, every, like it's, it's, it's you're, you're losing out. So I feel like uh, expanding ideas of like what all sex encompasses actually allows for us to have much more exploratory and exciting uh, experiences, you know? And also, yeah, pleasure should be mutual, right? All partners should 
be enjoying themselves ideally rather than it being only the person with the penis so yeah that's something that we can think about also sharing with each other what feels good i mean i think we don't do that enough sometimes we don't even know what feels good for us you know and and i think actually self pleasure can go a long way in providing that sort of gateway to your own sexual self knowledge like figuring out your own body figuring out what feels good and what doesn't what does what i mean we never vulva owners particularly never actually get educated in a formal capacity about their own anatomy so many women even like 35 years old have written to me being like i didn't know i don't menstruate from the same opening that i urinate from i just learned that from your video you know how can we be denied this basic information about our bodies right it's like imagine not knowing what your ear does or what your nose does or whatever it is right so i feel like this is stuff we deserve information about our own bodies we it is our right to know how it works and what it does what we choose to do with that knowledge is up to us but we deserve to at least know our anatomy right so yeah i mean it's it's unfortunate that we're not taught it or we're very rarely taught it but i think it would be great if we understand that sex is not just heterosexual that sex is not just about ejaculation and having babies and that sex is um you know that having sex for pleasure is a valid reason to have sex so one of the things lisa that from the men's standpoint you know there's a lot of sort of pressure in also satisfying your woman or make her orgasm and because of which a lot of men are intimidated with the use of sex toys because if my woman or my girl is using sex toy that means i'm not that good that she needs something else to sort of pleasure herself so why do you think men i'm not obviously generalizing it obviously you know there are so many men who would be comfortable with that and sort of open and i mean maybe they will sort of you know gift or bring um, the sex toys for their uh, women but on a macro level if we look at it a lot of men especially in india sort of are intimidated with the sex toys to bring in that relationship why do you think that and how can they sort of recondition themselves around uh, you know sex toys yeah i think that unfortunately this tendency to view a sex toy as a as competition uh, maybe comes from the fact that like most people think sex toys must resemble a penis or that like somehow it's you know your I don't know. I think it comes down to some very primal association of masculinity with your penis. How big and how your penis is, and now this toy is, you know. But actually, and I mean, many people don't realize this. A lot of toys, firstly, sex toys are not your competition. They are potentially your collaborator. You know, their technology. They exist. I mean, why am I using headphones right now or a computer right now? It makes my life easier to do this, right? It's not that my ears are not good, or you know that. we're too lazy to meet now he lives in delhi and i'm in goa it's so easy now that we can do a video calls so i'm using my computer and i hear him better with my headphones right these are all aids they're helping me do my work better similarly an accountant uses a calculator doesn't mean he's no good at math right so i feel like we should we do embrace technology in most areas of our life anything that makes a task more easy or effectively accomplished is is a good it's a good thing right why not use them so absolutely i would say forget about this whole idea of competition but where does it come from partly i think it has to do with the fact that most men think a sex toy must resemble a penis and now it's better than his penis but you know news flash actually most sex toys and especially vibrating toys 
I mean, the real game-changing difference that a lot of people with vulvas find is the sensation of vibration on the clitoris. Clitorises are extremely uh, sensitive to the sensation of vibration. It is a very effective sensation to uh, deliver an orgasm. And it doesn't have to look anything like a penis. It can literally be like a small ball that vibrates or a little bullet looking thing that vibrates or a wand shaped thing that like literally if you look at more modern sex toys a lot of them don't actually look like body parts at all they look like some kind of thing you would buy at the apple store and often i mean while of course dildos exist and that might also be pleasurable for some people and still not your competition i think what many people don't realize is just how effective this technology is at providing a very pleasurable sensation to the clitoris for many women particularly, although sex toys also exist for all kinds of people of all genders. There's toys for men. So we're going to get to that. But since your question was about how straight men feel threatened by their their female partners using toys, I wanted to just address that first. Um, and so, so yeah, it's, it's literally like this amazing tool that can be used either solo or together to enhance the pleasure of of this experience, you know, and, and without detracting from any, I mean, it's not going to take away from the man's pleasure. It will only enhance the pleasure for the other partner if they're into it. And maybe even you, I mean, the vibrating sensations can feel quite nice on other parts of the body as well, whether it's the scrotum or the nipples or whatever. It's like a fun, it's like a toy, a toy you can use together. It's fun. You know, so why see it as competition? Firstly, it's not competition. It's technology that, that can stand to be radically powerful especially when it comes to clitoral stimulation, because it's very hard to humanly provide that type of a sensation. You know what I mean? It's like, it isn't, it's not a question of competition. It's just a, it's just a thing Not tomorrow, you know, if, even if I was the fastest runner in the world, would I start running to people's houses? I would still use my car, right? I'm not in, I'm not competing with the car. <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm going to stop running. You know what I mean? It's just I like, love, it's like, comparing, it's comparing things that don't, that are not in competition with each other to begin with. Yeah, so I would say that it's technology that exists. And for many people, I mean, you know, many people don't realize that uh, most people with vulvas require some amount of clitoral stimulation to achieve orgasm, whether clitoral stimulation alone or clitoral stimulation in combination with penetration. Uh, and the clitoris extends internally as well. It's not just the P-shaped button at the top. So often even internal Stimulation that is very pleasurable is the result of the internal parts of the clitoris also being stimulated. Uh, and basically, like the vast majority of women do need some amount of clitoral stimulation. Okay. Now, because we don't ever talk about it or think, you know, whatever, it's just like so hush hush and we don't get this information. Most people think penetration, just like ghapaghap, should result in orgasm for both parties, right? It doesn't always. It might sometimes. And maybe in certain positions when the clitoris is also getting stimulation, but it doesn't always. And now here's a tool that can wake you up to the, to this idea that like stimulating this other part is also quite important. Here's an easy way to do it as well. And it'll just be more fun. Even penetration will feel better for both parties. Well, certainly for the vulva owner with this certain small addition. Very likely. Again, not, maybe not for everybody. Some people might not like vibrators. But it's just a, like, that's the thing that we all, like, there's no, no losing here. It's only winning for all parties. Um, that's how I look at it, at least, you know. Mm. But yes, toys do exist for everybody. I was going to say also that there are toys out there for so many different types of stimulation, so many different body parts. 
people of all genders. So I also want to just put it out there that it's not just a thing for women or in competition to straight men or whatever. It is like a universe of technology that can be really fun for all different types of relationships, all people of all genders, a whole variety of body parts. Like it's worth, if you're an adult who's curious about this stuff, it is worth educating yourself about the diverse like possibilities you know a vibrating dildo is not the only type of sex toy in the world and i think most men think that's the only type of sex toy in the world so lisa before we wrap this up you know in addition to everything that you have discussed so far what is that number one tip that you'd like to leave our audience with next time they get to the bedroom since we've already talked about consent safety and pleasure, I'm going to just share one very small and practical tip that I think can make a big difference. Use lube. Uh, For me, lube is like the unsung hero of better sex for everyone. It just makes sex more comfortable, more fun, all kinds of sex for anyone of any gender and even solo sex. Um, It just makes things more slippery, slidey and fun and can also very often ease any pain or discomfort that you might experience during sex. So use lube. So Lisa, this has been such a great conversation. If people would like to learn more from you, if they would like to get into this whole world of pleasure and learn a lot uh, from what you're sharing, where can they find? What is the best possible way to learn more from you and follow you and your work? Thank you. I am on Instagram, YouTube, and I also have a podcast, by the way. So I'm at Lisa Mangaldas on Instagram, Lisa Mangaldas on YouTube. And my podcast is called The Sex Podcast. And it is exclusively on Spotify. So do check all of the platforms out because they're all a bit different from each other. My Instagram is mainly in English, but my podcast and my YouTube channel also have a lot of Hindi content. Super stuff. I'm going to link all of that in the description of this episode. Do check that out. Follow Lisa. I'm sure you are going to learn a ton. Super. This has been great conversation, Lisa. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge with the audience of this podcast. And we have never done an episode on sex before. So I'm sure there's so much for our audience to learn about communication, about pleasure, about contraceptives, and also, you know, consent, like we discussed, and also explore then the what they might have been done. I'm sure they are going to walk back with an idea or two that they can experiment in their bedroom next time they head there. Uh, Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. This was absolutely my pleasure.